Good morning. If you were uh, with us last week, remember we uh, walked through Stephen's sermon where he uh, clearly articulates the gospel uh, to the Sanhedrin at uh, great risk to his own life. And uh, the sermon uh, ends rather abruptly with, uh, with Stephen very directly accusing the people listening to him of sinning against the Christ, and uh, their reaction is where we'll uh, start today. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, I'd like to read the text for you and then pray. Acts chapter 7. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for uh, the many evidences of your grace uh, that we see. And even as uh, the brothers have prayed this morning, God, we thank you especially that uh, now, for the first time, uh, Redemption Hill is opening their doors. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless uh, the fruit of our brothers and sisters' hands, God, that they're faithfulness in the months leading up to this day would uh, bear much fruit by the power of your Spirit, and that people who do not yet know you would come to know the grace of Jesus Christ, and God, that we would be privileged to continue to see uh, the gospel multiplied, and not just here, but also there, and that we would uh, see the working of your Spirit and that we would feel the working of your Spirit, God, knowing that 
any fruit that we do see is uh, not the effect of our hands, but God, uh, the power of your gospel working in the midst of our weakness. And God, we pray that we would be further inspired to awe as we see the progress of the gospel among the nations and even in our backyard. And we pray that as we turn to your word now, and that our hearts would be enriched, and that we would grow in our understanding of your calling upon us as followers of Christ, and that you would be glorified in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this text is, uh, I guess, in a way, kind of a major turning point in the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus had said uh, at the beginning of the book that he desired to see uh, the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And if you've been uh, reading to this point, I guess with some knowledge of the geography, you've noticed that it hasn't really gotten past Jerusalem at this point. Uh, only word of what's happening has reached some of the villages around Jerusalem. And uh, with Stephen's stoning, uh, the narrative in Acts shifts where uh, Jerusalem had been everything to this point. Uh, now, the, most of the rest of the book is about the progress of the gospel uh, beyond Jerusalem. And uh, the text serves as a transition in that way, explaining how is it that the gospel went from Jerusalem out, but the text itself is kind of a, a ping-pong, uh, right? It, it basically, Luke relates to us something that the people of God do, and then how people react to the people of God, and then what the people of God do in response to what happened, and then what happens next. And so I'm going to kind of walk through the text and follow the the back and forth that Luke gives us, and then kind of step back and talk about the effects of these events. But said uh, 54 picks up with uh, the people that have been listening to Stephen being absolutely enraged, in fact, grinding their teeth. They are furious about everything that he's saying, I think, uh, about Jesus Christ, but probably especially furious about his accusation that uh, they have done something wrong, uh, but even as uh, the, their anger at Stephen becomes visible, Luke says that he, uh, still empowered fully by the Holy Spirit, is granted a vision of the risen Christ. The heavens open before him, and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And I think in the flow of the text, we should absolutely understand Stephen's vision to be God's affirmation of everything that Stephen has said. And maybe more than that, uh, the, his particular vision, I think, is interesting. First, because he's the only person other than Jesus to call Jesus the Son of Man, but maybe even more than that, he sees Jesus standing and Remember back to the beginning that Jesus, uh, with work being accomplished, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and uh, people, I think, guess at what the standing means, but 
There's probably uh, two reasons that Jesus is standing. Uh, number one, I think Jesus standing is not because the work is not finished, but Jesus' standing could be understood to be Jesus welcomely, welcoming Stephen to heaven. That Jesus is affirming everything that Stephen has just done and welcoming him, but also Jesus standing at the right hand of the God uh, could very much indicate Jesus' uh, readiness to judge the people who are presuming to judge Stephen, right? If we think about it, uh, the people that Stephen is speaking to uh, have decided that they are going to judge Stephen, but in fact, it's Jesus who is going to judge them for their opposition to the gospel. And whether Luke wants us to understand both of these things or only one of them, I think uh, Really, we should understand the vision itself as an affirmation of Stephen's ministry. And uh, even as Stephen is seeing the Lord affirm his ministry, uh, the crowd, or the Sanhedrin, begins crying out, and they plug their ears so that they can't hear anything else that he says. Uh, they, they rush at him. And to this point, uh, this, this whole incident, and I've had a veil of legality, uh, the Sanhedrin, by, in accordance with the law, certainly had the right to judge someone who is doing what Stephen is accused of doing, falsely accused of doing, and uh, in the past, they would have had the authority legally uh, to pronounce a judgment of stoning upon a person who was guilty of the things that Stephen has been charged with. Interestingly, uh, at this point in history, uh, and we see it play out in the trial of Jesus, they actually don't have that legal authority. The Romans uh, have that legal authority, and they're not allowed to put anyone to death. But this is happening at a point where uh, Roman authority in Jerusalem is probably as weak as it's been in a long time. And uh, enraged and maybe... Uh, aware enough of the situation to know that nothing is going to stop them, they cast him out of the city and stone him. And Luke doesn't really give us enough uh, detail to know for sure whether they at some point legally pronounced a judgment of guilty over Stephen and then proceeded to stone him, or they just skipped that step entirely and stoned Stephen. But uh, as you read verses 57 and 58, it, it does sort of give the idea that this is uh, as much mob violence at this point as anything. Um, but they take Stephen out of the city uh, because he is guilty, and they proceed to stone him. The witnesses would be the people who uh, were the first to cast stones and probably to, to unencumber themselves. They take off their outer garments and they lay them at the feet of a young man named Saul, who, of course, we'll get to know better later. But uh, at this point, the formal act of laying their garments at Saul's feet is probably introducing uh, Saul to us as somebody that had some degree of authority over what happened, is what is happening, or at least as much authority as a person can have over a mob. But as they are proceeding to stone Stephen, and I don't, I don't know that I'll say this 
second hour. They're more young years. But uh, stoning is uh, a particularly violent way to die. But in the way that stoning would typically happen in the Old Testament, uh, a person would probably die uh, with the first stone. Or actually, you would be pushed off of a cliff, maybe 10 or 12 feet, uh, and then they would roll large boulders down the hill, and probably the first one would kill you. Uh, But the way this narrative plays out with Stephen being in the act of being stoned and still speaking probably indicates that this wasn't a typical stoning. Rather than uh, being crushed by a large boulder, they are picking up you know, softball-sized rocks and throwing them at Stephen until he dies. So what Luke isn't saying explicitly, but we should probably understand to be happening, is Stephen is dying in a particularly gruesome way. And as this is playing out, Uh, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling down, he begs the Lord not to hold this sin against the people who are killing them. And with that, he dies. And I think it's interesting to note that Stephen's last two, the last two things Stephen is recorded saying are almost exactly like the last two things that we know that Jesus said. I want to come back to that in a minute, but note uh, even as um, probably a mob is killing Stephen in a particularly brutal way, uh, Stephen's response to that violence is Jesus' response to similar violence. And Even as all this is happening, Luke notes that Saul approves of this execution, which uh, is a very uh, brief note, but tells us a lot about Saul at this point. It also tells us a lot about the situation in Jerusalem. Remember, we said a few weeks ago that Saul is a student of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel is the most prominent of the Pharisees. And to this point, the church had been able to uh, minister in Jerusalem partially because the Pharisees seemed to be counseling restraint in dealing with the church, even while the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin were wanting to stop the church's ministry by force. And when Luke notes that a, a student of a very prominent Pharisee approves of this execution, the, the footnote there is, at this point, or with Stephen's sermon in front of the Sanhedrin, now all of the power in Jerusalem is arrayed against the church. The Pharisees and the Sadducees together have decided that the only way to stop the church is to silence it by force. And chapter 8 begins with the note uh, that... uh, Given that situation, a great persecution, a persecution unlike the persecution the church had faced to this point, arises against the church in Jerusalem to the point that uh, almost everyone, all of the believers, leave Jerusalem and scatter. And even as there is great persecution, uh, 
Luke mentions that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, which of course was a very public thing. And uh, if if Stephen uh, had been uh, pronounced guilty in a formal legal sense, uh, everyone would have understood a public burial to be out of line. And so verse 2 probably indicates that everything about Stephen's death, uh, like people knew that this was not legal, that this wasn't right. And I think in addition to that, verse 2 indicates to us that even as the believers in Jerusalem are scattering away from Jerusalem, that uh, the believers in Jerusalem are so confident in Christ that they do what they understand to be right uh, in reference to Stephen and Stephen's passing even as that certainly opens them to uh, further risk of persecution. But while all this is going on, Saul has taken a very proactive uh, stance in ravaging the church. And the, the word there literally means that, uh, like, a, like a lion or a tiger like tearing at its prey, that he is doing everything he can to brutally dismantle the church, going house to house, arresting anyone and sending them to prison. In fact, the persecution against the church in Acts is kind of so personified by Saul, who we'll know later as Paul, that on Paul's conversion, uh, Luke notes that once Paul's converted, peace sort of falls on the church in chapter 9. Uh, Paul is doing everything he can to destroy this church and the response to that persecution is going out from Jerusalem. They are preaching the word now everywhere. In fact, Philip the deacon goes to Samaria and begins proclaiming Christ even in Samaria. And unlike the crowd in Jerusalem at uh, this point, the crowds in Samaria are eagerly paying attention to everything that Stephen is saying and Stephen is performing the same sorts of signs and wonders that the apostles were performing in Jerusalem, casting out unclean spirits, healing people, that manifestations of the Spirit are very evident in the ministry of Stephen or ministry of Philip, and Philip's effect in this city uh, is obvious. There is much joy in the city, certainly uh, because of the uh, physical uh, effects of Philip's ministry, that is, people being healed, demons being cast out, but also because of the message that Philip is proclaiming. Right? That uh, with Philip's coming to this city, uh, the effects of the gospel are apparent to all, and the city is rejoicing. And I think that there's a number of things that are evident in this text. And I think probably the first, and if, if we reach back into chapter 7, is what, what we're seeing essentially is the proclamation of the Word of God and its effect back and forth with uh, some people on hearing the Word of God, they are absolutely enraged, and some others are apparently enraptured in joy 
but with the proclamation of the Word of God, there is always an effect. The effect isn't always the same. Sometimes it's rage. Sometimes it's joy. But uh, the church is faithful in proclaiming the Word of God, whether the effect is people being enraged or people being enraptured in joy. And I think uh, we certainly ought to take uh, some note of the consistency of the church's ministry uh, through this period, regardless of how people are receiving the proclamation of God's Word. Right? Uh, in other words, we cannot change people's hearts. We have no control over how people will receive the Word of God. We have no control over how they will react to the proclamation of the gospel. We can't control whether they will persecute us or whether they will be joyful. It is not our job and it's not in our ability to change people's hearts. That the church's commitment then and always should be the clear proclamation of the Word of God and then confidence that the Spirit of God will allow the Word of God to have its effect. Our resolve always has to be the clear proclamation of the Word of God. But more than that, and as uh, Luke weaves Saul into this narrative, uh, or as Saul is woven into this narrative, I think uh, it's, it's interesting to note that if a person were to decide that it is appropriate to determine like the degree to which the Word of God should be proclaimed based on the reaction of the crowd, that uh, probably with the stoning of Stephen, the church would have said, it's time, to, it's time to pull back. It's time to cool off a little bit. People aren't receiving this well. We're being persecuted. And in the end, the fruit that none of them were able to see at this point was, I think, the effect that this is probably having on Saul. Of course, we'll see that uh, instrumental in Saul's call was Jesus' appearing to him on the road to Damascus, but I can't help but think that some seed is planted in the heart of Saul, even as he is set in opposition to the church. Or in other words, uh, we, I think, almost never have uh, a big enough context to make determination about whether or not uh, what we're doing is fruitful. Right? That uh, we can think that we see everything, but we certainly don't see far enough down the road to see how our proclamation of the Word of God is planting seeds that might not come to fruition for weeks or months or years. That uh, our commitment always has to be clear proclamation of the Word of God, whether or not we think we're seeing fruit, because God has promised that He will bring fruit through the proclamation of the gospel, and whether or not we can see it does not change or should not change our confidence that God will absolutely always do what He promises to do. And I would also point out uh, 
that like as you see how Stephen's story concludes and, and how Stephen responds in this situation, uh, there's a little lie that I think we all struggle with that uh, is, is put down hard by Stephen, I think. You know, we all understand that we are called to be like Christ, but I think it's easy for us sometimes to assume, like, well, I'm not Jesus. I, you know, you, you can't expect me to be perfect. I'm not God. Right? That Jesus is somehow some, uh, Jesus' example to us is somehow some unobtainable style of living and it's hopeless even to pursue that style of living because we're not God. And sometimes act like commands of Jesus are also unattainable. You know, like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like, well, okay, Jesus, I get it. But realistically, who can love their enemies? Nobody can do that. Okay, yeah, you did, but... You're Jesus, right? In Stephen's example, we see somebody living exactly the way that Jesus did. In fact, he says, in, in almost an exact situa- uh, situation exactly like Jesus, he reacts almost exactly like Jesus. Right? That in the, Stephen's example, we see not the Son of God modeling for us what a life empowered by the Spirit of Christ looks like, we, we see a guy, a guy like us, demonstrating what is possible for someone who is walking by the Spirit. That absolutely we can, uh, walking by the Spirit of God, live like Stephen was. Live loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, pursuing radical obedience to the cause of Christ, regardless of what it costs us. That that kind of conformity to the image of Christ is not an unobtainable goal. And this idea that rattles around in our brains sometimes, that we can't ever live like that, is a lie from the pit of hell. That absolutely empowered by the Spirit of God, we can be conformed to the image of Christ. Not because of ourselves, not because we're good enough, not because we want it bad enough, but because God is at work in us. And anytime you hear yourself saying something to yourself, like, well, you know, that, that's not... No, no, God can't expect that from me. Like, think about Stephen. Think about a guy who was walking by the Spirit and living in a way that we all find ourselves thinking, nobody can do that. That, that our buying that lie uh, is purely a lack of faith that God can do what He says He's doing in us. And I think probably more and more uh, that we're going to have opportunity to show that. 
I, uh, I have conversations regularly and uh, get frustrated often. I like the way things are going in our world. You know, like politics, like politicians. Uh, yeah, like it, it seems like almost daily I get sent a video or see a video of somebody somewhere in the U.S. doing something that a decade ago would have been unimaginable to me. And it is frustrating, sometimes infuriating to me. Uh, and I think that uh, our reaction in, in those circumstances uh, could be any number of things. Um, but uh, I am. I don't know. Well, I mean, anybody else feel that too? Like the, that the world is a little bit frustrating right now? Our, our reaction uh, surely could be to kind of just shrink back from that in cowardice and kind of moan about what's been lost and, uh, you know, uh, do nothing. Uh, our reaction uh, to those circumstances could certainly be uh, to kick and rage against the way things are going as if this world is our home and... Uh, Preserving what makes us comfortable is the best thing that we can do. But I think probably in our saner moments, we would all agree that uh, neither one of those things is the appropriate reaction. I think uh, probably uh, the church's reaction at this point, uh, we would say, should be always our reaction. That... Uh, Whatever is going on in the world around us, whatever our circumstances are, that ultimately our aim ought to always be the clear proclamation of the gospel, regardless of how the world is reacting to the news of Jesus Christ. That certainly, uh, certainly some aspect of calling people to the gospel of Jesus Christ is... Uh, recognizing evil as evil. But at the same time, uh, I think churches are especially prone to uh, calling evil evil uh, in a way that kind of results in like a beating the chest Pharisee type of moment, right? Where we sit around acting as if we are righteous. We barely need Jesus, and everybody else needs him real bad. And that is absolutely not the gospel. Again, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That we need the gospel as badly as anyone. That the gospel is ultimately the only hope for a world that seems intent on pursuing every kind of depravity imaginable. And our role in this situation is always 
the clear proclamation of the gospel with utter confidence that no matter how the world receives our proclaiming Jesus Christ, that ultimately our faithfulness in the task that Jesus has given us is going to be our greatest joy. That the Son of Man is standing, waiting to receive us, uh, all who believe, into his arms and then to judge those who oppose his church. I think if we are confident in that fact, if we are uh, firm in our calling, that absolutely we will be uh, shocked to see what the Lord does and, Lord willing, in our age, surprised to see how much joy there can be in people who truly receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, especially after the taste, the fruitlessness of sin. I I hope always that we are people confident that God can use any and every circumstance for the advance of his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the grace that you give, God, that uh, we can be confident that even as the world may mystify us, it may frustrate us, God, that your sovereign hand is working in every circumstance to accomplish your perfect will. And God, we pray that you would give us faith in that, God, hope in knowing that you are using every circumstance to accomplish your will. And God, we know what your will is. God, we pray that we would be uh, privileged to see the gospel advance around us, and even now, God, that you would use evidences of the fruit of the gospel to strengthen our faith, uh, that, that, that the joy that those who receive Christ display would be evident before us, God, uh, not just at the end of time, but here and now. God, we pray that you would uh, strengthen our hearts for uh, the work that you've called us to. God, we pray that uh, by your spirit we would raise drooping hands for the work of ministry. God, we pray that uh, you would accomplish your will in us and through us for your glory alone. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.